Uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and that's actually right this week. It is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter uh, 1. As we continue in our series, Experience Christmas, and this morning the sermon is entitled, The Gift of Not Giving. And so as we continue uh, to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to read out of Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. And as soon as the choir members have sat down, would you stand for the reading of God's word uh, here together? Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Hopefully I continue uh, a familiar theme for you. The precious and errant word of God says, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. And he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants Forever. First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning to hear your word read, to hear it sung, to hear it prayed. Father, we ask simply that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might better understand your mercy that's extended to your people realized for your people through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. So let me ask you a question to start off this morning. What is the best thing that you have never received for Christmas? Do you not understand that question? What's the, what's the best thing that you have never received for Christmas? If you need an example, for instance, who here has ever received for Christmas uh, a man-eating bear? All right, raise your hand if you've ever woken up on Christmas morning, you got up, you went out, you unwrapped the box, and as you opened the box, a big roar and a big giant bear came off and maybe bit off some flesh or a limb or something. Anyone? No? Okay, no one, right? So... More to the point of this message, uh, who here has received something that they deserve on or around Christmas? So kids, maybe you could help me out here this morning. Have any of the children in here, probably not these children, but maybe you know a child who has disobeyed their parents on Christmas or around Christmas or at a Christmas celebration and your parents being holy, having spent the morning meditating on the mercy of Christ Jesus, turned to you and said, you are forgiven my child, go and sin no more. So you thought, praise God for what I did not receive on Christmas, the punishment of my parents. Okay, so maybe you can't relate to that either, but maybe you can at least relate, kids, to your parents being too busy and distracted to discipline you when they should have. 
You could have paused then and thought, well, praise God for not receiving what I should have this Christmas morning. But church, in in all seriousness, have you ever thought of Christmas in terms of not what you get or even the gift that you have received, but in terms of what you haven't gotten, what you haven't received? I would make the argument this morning that it is right to do that very thing, to think of Christmas in terms of a gift received, and and that's appropriate, but more importantly, to think of, of, of Christmas in terms of a gift not received, that you could have received. I think oftentimes we think of Christmas as a gift received, and it just stops there. It's appropriate to think of Christmas in that way in some level. But this morning, we'll be reminded that what we celebrate on Christmas is also the celebration of what we won't be given. So let's consider Mary's song in light of that. But first, before we even get to Mary's song, we've got to spend a lot of time because this is just one part of the story. There's a big overall story that's happening throughout all the scripture. We've got to first look at the situation. Specifically, we've got to appreciate Mary's situation. So that's what we'll look at first. The situation. For the historical context, you have to understand who Mary was and where she was. We don't know a lot about Mary before the events recorded in here, Luke, but we may safely assume that she was young. We know that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph, which means she's going to be married to him. This marriage has been arranged and it's already legally binding, though they are not yet married. We know, as we said last week, that Mary and Joseph were apparently poor. We know this because of chapter 2 when she goes to the temple for the purification ceremony. She offers two turtle doves or pigeons, which is the exception for those who could not afford a lamb. So she was young. She was likely poor. She was betrothed to Joseph. And we also know that she was an Israelite. Now this is of utter importance to understand for the context of our story here. Mary belonged to the people of God. The people who traced their lineage all the way back to a man named Abraham. Their fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those names ring a bell or look familiar. Often when the Bible refers to the fathers, they are talking about these patriarchs. Their stories are told in the book of Genesis. Abraham being called from the land of Ur by God himself, responding in faith. He goes out from his family, having no idea where he's going, but he's listening to the voice of the Lord, and God calls him to the land. He promises him that land, and he promises him to make him a great nation and to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. This is who Mary's parents were. This is who her fathers were. She Uh, belonged to this people. She was a member of the holy people of God. The people that God chose out of all the other people on the earth that they would be a recipient of a promise to be God's people and to have, uh, and that he would be their God forever. This promise of God to Abraham was secured by something we refer to as a covenant. If you're not familiar with that term, think of a marriage. A covenant is a binding relationship between two people that actually forms a relationship that did not exist before the binding, before the covenant is made. 
So as a man and a woman come together formally, two people, and and through marriage, they become, according to the Bible, one flesh, establishing a relationship that did not formally exist. So also, God bound himself to Abraham and all of descendants in covenant, promising to, to give him a place and to make him a people, to be his people, that he would be their God. Well, just as it is in marriage, there are responsibilities and also privileges. So it is with a covenant. A marriage, for instance, there is the obligation of fidelity between both partners. I think we're familiar with that. And if you're old-fashioned like me, you think that the husband is obliged to provide and protect his wife. Obviously, the wife has obligations as well as privileges of, of, of companionship, for instance, mutual care and service, etc., But the point is, in every covenant, just like a marriage covenant, there is a new relationship formed that necessitates obligation and secures privileges. So when God promised to be Abraham's God and for Abraham and his children to be his people, he secured that promise with a covenant. And this covenant wasn't just for Abraham, but it was for Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, Isaac's son, and Abraham's grandson, and Jacob's 12 son, which would represent the nation of Israel. So Israel entered into or was part of this covenant that was made between God and Abraham, God and Isaac, God and Jacob, God and Israel. However, and we know this story pretty well, Israel eventually broke that covenant. They were unfaithful to these vows. If I could put it in these terms, they cheated on God over and over and over again. They were adulterers. In fact, the the scripture uses those very terms. They had relationships with many other men, with other nations, with other gods. So, so now that brings us to Mary, and we've got to understand that to, to understand Mary's situation there, which is the first point in your outline, by the way. In fact, if, if, if you look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it opens like this. We're looking at Mary's situation here in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Look at how this story of Luke, Luke opens this gospel. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, already a red flag should just come up right at that. Because if we know anything about history, you know anything about Herod, Herod was considered an outsider. He was not a rightful king of Israel. Certainly not a son of David. In fact, he was the son of an Edomite. Regardless of Herod's prerogative to rule or to be king, he actually wasn't a king anyway. He was a puppet king. He was a compliant king of the Roman Empire. See, Israel was subjugated to Rome at the time. In other words, God's people, the people he made a covenant with, were subjugated to a foreign power, which is indicative, by the way. See, this this whole covenant we've been talking about, this whole relationship thing, unlike marriage, especially in our culture, where if it doesn't work out, you just get divorced and go on your own ways, that is not how a covenant works. It's not how a covenant of God works. The covenant itself comes with blessings and curses. And if you are obedient to that covenant, you remain in that covenant. You remain in a right relationship with God. He therefore pours out blessings upon you because of your right relationship with him. 
But if you were to break the covenant, if you were adulterous, then what happens by necessity is that the curse is actually poured out upon you. It's just the opposite of the blessing. The blessing is fruitfulness in every way, shape, or form in the land in which God is giving his people. So, for instance, the the women are are fruitful, the the livestock are fruitful, the fields are fruitful. There's just fruit all over the place. So if that's the blessing, then the curse is exactly the opposite. No fruit, a barren womb, barren lamb, no harvest. And eventually what we see happen in the history of Israel is that the enemy conquers them and takes them into exile. This is the execution of the realization that the covenant curse in Mary is living under this curse. She's back in the promised land. She's back in the land God promised to Israel, but this is not a free people living under the rule of God. This is a subjugated people living under the rule of a foreign nation. But the scene actually gets worse. Because Luke introduces us to two characters which are just blessed people, wonderful characters in Scripture that we love, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we know they're blessed because he's in the line of Aaron and he's a priest and actually even Elizabeth is in the line of Aaron. So you have the appearance of a couple who are walking in righteousness and blamelessness before their God and and, and Luke records that. But then you come to verse 7 and you just do a, oh no, how... How can this be? These blessed people, these blameless, righteous people. Look at verse 7. It says, but they had no child. Now, we just think in terms of uh, today, and we think, oh, man, it's probably just a medical difficulty. It's a shame. They didn't live in this day and age. They probably could have seen a doctor and had that problem fixed. But that's not what we're supposed to read here, friends. This is actually indicative of a covenant curse. Just like the subjugation to Rome. If the womb is barren, it's because the Lord has not opened the womb. If it is possible for the picture to get any darker at this point, it does in in verse 18 of chapter 1. You have to realize that this priest, Zacharias the Levite, was supposed to teach people about the promises of God and how they were to respond to these promises. He was to teach them the covenant. He was to teach them the whole book of the law. It was one of his responsibilities. So what we read in Luke 1.18 should disturb us every much as the barren Israelite woman. Look at what it says. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. A, a righteous blameless wife of a priest, barren, so also a righteous and blameless priest being surprised that God can open a barren womb. And in fact, it's even more shocking. Zacharias is incredulous. He is shocked that the angel is saying that the Lord is going to open the womb of his wife even though he's advanced in years. This is a people, after all, of a woman who had a closed womb, if you will. A barren woman, Sarah, is their mother. Does he not know the story of Abraham and Sarah? How could he be surprised that God could say, even in your late age, your wife is going to have a child? I don't think you understand this. Had he not read 
Not just Sarah, but what about the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson, who was also barren? Did that stop the Lord from bringing forth Samson? By no means. Hannah, what we read earlier, the very song we read was a response to the Lord opening her womb when it was closed. This isn't like a new event. Unique, yes. A miraculous, absolutely. But not shocking and unheard of, not for the people of God. Yet Zacharias doesn't understand how this could possibly be. And, and this, friends, is indicative of the darkness that had fallen upon the land. You could even ask Zacharias if he has read Psalm 113.9, knowing that the Lord, he, makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. That is who our God is. That's who he is. This is who Israel's God is. He is the God of the impossible who brings forth life from barren places, light out of darkness who fulfills every promise in the face of seemingly hopeless situations. That's who our God is. And this righteous priest is surprised that God would or maybe even could do such a thing. So again, the point is this is Mary's situation. Mary lived in a very dark and hopeless day. It would seem that even the priest had forgotten who their God is. Again, if you're, if you're not sure how Israel came to be in such a predicament, just do yourself a favor. Go back and read First and Second Kings. The short of it is they sinned against God, they broke covenant with him, and they were under the covenant curse. But this wasn't just their problem. And if you are a Gentile, which I believe the majority of us are in here, you need to understand this isn't just Mary's problem. It's not just her situation. It's not just Israel's problem or situation. See, Israel, God's people, they were known as the hope of the nations. The blessing of God was to flow through Israel to the ends of the earth. This was God's answer to the curse that had been administered to all creation in Genesis 3. Israel was, in a sense, a picture of the cure. Or at least the cure was to come through them. The promised seed of Abraham was the antidote to our sin problem. Israel was to be a beacon of light for a dark world. It was to raise a banner to the nations to draw them to their God. That the kingdom of God might spread through the entire earth and fill the earth. The glory of God shining from sea to sea. But the fount of blessing was under God's curse, and every nation dwelt in darkness because of it. The whole world groaned under the weight of sin, and the hopeless plight of Israel is our problem and was our problem. It was our problem because we were also under the curse, hopeless and separated from God. This is the situation. This was the situation. Israel itself was a barren womb, and the Lord is about to bring forth life. Not just John the Baptist from Elizabeth, but the Lord Jesus Christ from Israel. See, what we see here in Mary's song is actually a response to the situation, or better, number two, the second heading we're looking at today, the solution to the situation. This is the solution. You have to understand the situation in order to understand what Mary's song means. Her song is a response to the solution that has now come. In a word, if I might this morning just offer one word to summarize the solution to the situation, it's this word. Mercy. It's mercy. 
What is needed is mercy because what is deserved is wrath. The covenant curse is the right and just response to Israel's unfaithfulness. It is the right and just response of the wicked rebellion of all the nations. No one seeks God. No one honors or worships him as they should. No nation follows his laws and trusts in him alone. So Israel's only hope, and therefore our only hope, was that God would show mercy. That is, not repay them according to their iniquities. And Mary's song emphasizes this very theme. You see it throughout this, this song and this text here. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 50. It says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. But it's not even just in Mary's song. You know the story. Even in Zacharias' song, which is what follows Mary's. If you look over at verse 72 and you read that, it says, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verses 74 and 75, this is Zacharias after he had his voice taken away from him and, and John is born, he's granted this. He says, to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You see it in verse 78 of Luke chapter one as well, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. There is an emphasis here upon the mercy of God toward a people who are rightly enduring the covenant curses which have been brought against them. Mary and Zacharias recognize that in these events, the solution to their situation has finally arrived. The mercy that God had promised to Abraham is about to be realized. The mercy of God is being communicated really here in two primary means, but our, our third is gonna be look at the, the the second of that primary means. If we can use both Mary's song and Zechariah's prophecy at the end of chapter one, there are two themes that run through both of these. The first is the humble state of God's people. That is, they've been laid low, they've been subjugated, they're poor, they're hungry, they're barren, they're experiencing covenant curses. And that just isn't because their enemies are stronger than this. It's because God has handed them over because of their unfaithfulness. The second theme will be our third point. That's salvation. Really, what, it's just permeating throughout these two. This prophecy and this song is the theme of the salvation of God. Running all the way through both these songs, God's mercy, it's going to be demonstrated in his salvation. These songs are born of the conviction that God's salvation has finally arrived. Look at how Mary's song starts in verse 46 and 47. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. If you look at Zacharias' prophecy, it's full of salvation. Four times it says salvation here. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Verse 71, he says salvation from our enemies. Verse 74, to grant us that we are being rescued from the hand of our enemies. Verse 77, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. Salvation is the theme of this song. 
God is going to save his people. So here's the question. Save them from what? When you, when you guys hear the word salvation and you think of being saved, what do you think you need to be saved from? I mean, their enemies is one thing that is mentioned here in the text. Physical enemies, obviously, in view. But, but don't miss this. When you read through the Old Testament, Israel never lost a battle because their enemies were stronger than any more than they ever won a battle because they're stronger than their enemies. One thing scripture makes very clear is that's not how that works. Israel won when God was for them and went out before them. Israel lost and was defeated when God turned his face away from them. That's how it worked. It was never dependent upon men or chariots in the history of Israel. Every battle you read in the Old Testament falls under this line. So if God is going to save them from their enemies, he's going to have to save them from their sin. He will have to. The curse will have to be taken away. Back in Zacharias' song, verses 77 and 78, look at what it says again. He says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. So again, friends, what do you think you need saving from? Failing physical health? Occupational challenges? Relational difficulties? Pastors that preach too long? <laughs> what do you think God saves us from? All of those except the pastor one, really. But it's, these, are, these are all secondary issues, aren't they? What we actually need saving from, church family, is the righteous wrath of God. Which is, by the way, the righteous response to sin. That is what Mary and Zacharias are singing about. It's the mercy of God demonstrated in the salvation of sinners. Salvation, to some extent, from us, from our own sin and the guilt and power of sin, our rebellion and our hard-heartedness. So th there's a third song I want to point out to you quickly. Other than Mary's, other than Zacharias's, it's actually Simeon's in chapter 2. And I just want to read that specifically now in verses 29 through 30 of chapter 2. Look at this. Simeon says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Just a little context here. This third song is the birth narrative. And the, the Gospel of Luke makes this clear that the salvation is Jesus Christ. He's the salvation. And Simeon makes this clear. Simeon's an old man who had waited and longed for the birth of the Messiah, who had prayed that God would not allow him to die until he saw the Messiah. And there in this verse, he sees baby Jesus. And look at what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon beholds this baby who Mary carries into the temple and this old man says, my eyes have now seen, beheld the salvation of God. This child born to Mary is the God, her Savior, the Most High Lord, born to Mary, born to a woman, born under the law in order to redeem his people so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Salvation. 
This baby, this child whom we celebrate this morning, his birth is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who would himself take upon our sin. He was born to suffer and die in our place. He's the one who came to save sinners, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy. The one who actually became a curse, according to Paul in Galatians 3. He was the one who was hung on a tree bearing our iniquities according to Peter in 1 Peter 3. Jesus is the way that the mercy of God has come to the whole world. God's people Israel and the whole of the Gentiles. In verse 31 of chapter 2, at the end of Simeon's prayer, he says, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Friends, you know what this means? (laughs) means Jesus is for everyone. Everyone, God's mercy demonstrated through salvation. The greatest gift that we ever received is the gift of not receiving that which we deserved. Listen, I know, I get it, condemnation of sinners and God's righteous wrath towards sinners is probably not going to be preached at most concepts at Christmas services across the nation and evangelical curses. And yet, it's at the very heart of why we celebrate Christmas. Our celebration of Christmas should echo Mary's song of praise. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Who saved me from what? His righteous wrath against my sin. Oh, the sweet mercy of God who's exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry with good things. So that we are no longer those without hope Without God in the world, we are the adopted children of God. His beloved in Christ, redeemed for the Lord, forgiven through the blood of Christ. You know, my, the thing that always gets me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, sometimes, you know, you see these sentimental videos that are always just geared to make you cry, and, and you're just like, why would I want to watch this, right? Um, but the thing, I, I showed Xandra this week, I just saw this on Twitter, the thing that always gets me is adoption. I just saw this picture of this, this little boy uh, who opened for Christmas a picture of, of this family who had apparently fostered him and brought him in. And, and he looks at this card and says, next, next year we want you to be part of the picture because we want you to be part of our family. And this 9 to 10 year old boy just starts weeping with joy. And I always get choked up at this because it's such a picture of Christ and what he's done for us. That's the meaning of Christmas. We who are far off, who are not of the children of God, who are rebelling against him, get to be brought into the family of God. And it's based solely on mercy. Because I see that and I think, man, understanding the, the humanity of mankind and thinking of the mercy it must take for foster parents to love children that way. To think of the mercy I would need and I would require to do such a thing. And I'm so grateful we have many foster families in our church that I'm so grateful and I love so dearly. But friends, it's such a beautiful gift of the gospel, isn't it? Because we are in desperate need of mercy. We're in desperate need to be brought into the family of God. And Christ, when he comes, he represents that now salvation has come. Adoption has come. You can be brought in to the family of God through his death. What joy we should have to celebrate this Christmas. Let's meditate on this. Spend time this year meditating on the mercy of God and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin bearer, our curse carrier, our perfect propitiation. He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to stand in our stead. 
And it's for that reason that he was born. There is no celebrating Christmas without celebrating Easter. He satisfied the divine wrath of God so that we might receive divine mercy. And because of him, for all who trust in him, regardless of what you get this year for Christmas, you should praise God for what you know with confidence you will not get. The wrath your sin deserves. So church, the encouragement here is that we would magnify the Lord. Let our spirit rejoice in God our Savior. For we are blessed because Jesus was cursed. Let's stand together as we pray. Gracious Father, we indeed thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And the love that is ours through him. Father, let us never forget the cost. Let us never forget that he's the one who saves us from the wrath to come. That all who trust in him will be hidden in him on that day. Father, would you help us to sing with joy and rejoice and to overflow with thanksgiving throughout the rest of this day, this week, this season. As we ponder and experience the great glory of your son coming, clothing himself in human flesh so that he might suffer and die in our place. Thank you for your mercy demonstrated through salvation, saving us from your righteous wrath. Lord, thank you for adopting us into your family. Father, if there be anyone here who's not the part of the family of God, oh Lord, we would pray that they would see their situation, they would see the solution of mercy, and they would experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this and ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.